Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Adam Steiner, who wrote the book Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails, and the Creation of the Downward Spiral. Welcome, Adam. Hi, how you doing? Good, thanks. Let's talk about your book. Uh, this was outside my normal purview. You write in the book's preface that the downward spiral is, quote, difficult to explain or examine. Mm. Yet here we are discussing your 250-page book about the album. Yeah, yeah. I think sort of when you approach it objectively, especially if you're completely unfamiliar with the band, I think it kind of comes across as a sort of like impossible kind of weird artifact. Uh, not necessarily just a music record. So it's like has that sense of strange otherness that you, I think is really rare with like certain bits of music. So I would compare it to something maybe like Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures. It seems to exist in its own abstract universe um, that's slightly devoid from normal day-to-day existence. That kind of like extra out there quality is what makes it so distinctive. And I think like when, when you talk about it as like a record, it sometimes seems like you've picked up like a snuff artifact or something, you know, is this just someone's mad horrific screed against the world? Or is it an album that's supposed to have fast songs and slow songs, hit singles and a little bit of filler and be rounded out about 12 tracks, 45 minutes, and then people are going to want to buy it. (laughs) Um, For me, it kind of exists in a weird kind of interstitial space between those two states. Well, it is a very dark and a difficult album to listen to. Mm. Your book is equally dark and, and very dense, and it's a very, very informative read. I think this is the second podcast I've done where I was really on my own and unfamiliar with the subject matter, so it's always nice to have a guide such as you. And, mm. um, you know, the book was really, really interesting, although I did have to put it down every five pages or so. <laughs> yeah. And listen to a song or two, which was not too long. But I'm curious, what, what does this album mean to you? That's a really good question. Yeah. I, I think one of the interesting things about writing this kind of book is that you're sort of writing it from a relatively objective perspective. You know, like you said, I, I try to sort of like pack the book with a lot of information, factoids, if you really want to geek out, and um, also kind of say, this is what I think about this, and this is my interpretation of that but also to try and bring in other quotes and resources. I sort of realised that there's a lot of common ground for people who listen to it, but I think how it came into their lives is really unique. So um, the songs remain the same, if you will, (laughs) uh, but our interpretation, or at least our association with it, is really distinctive. For me, it was kind of like a gateway to like challenging feelings. Like The album sort of comes across a bit like a cathartic scream, and I think for lots of people, it's sort of like, I kind of wish I could do that. Not necessarily go away and make an album about stuff, mm. but I wish I could um, express things in such an intense, overwhelming way. And I think like what Trent Reznor really achieved with it was to challenge himself a lot and really dig deep um, on his own experiences, but then put them into something quite objective, like a music album. And that challenges the listener as well. And so I think like all art, there's some artifice to this obviously knowingly but overall the, the overall impression and the sensation of listening to it is that it's sincere it comes from a really genuine open and, and vulnerable place and maybe that's what the kind of record allows you to do it allows you to admit that there's some of you in all of that as well 
Yeah, and that kind of leads to my next question. So the album expresses and explores themes such as depression, obsession, addiction, BDSM, atheism, self-loathing, but it sold 5 million copies in the U.S. alone. Yeah. And you contend that it really was a record that expressed the mood and atmosphere of its time. What does that tell you? Uh, yeah, it, as you say, it kind of reels off like a shopping list of um, really extreme things. It's not your usual weekly run. And I think for me, it kind of exposes and reflects a lot of things about human nature, um, which we don't necessarily want to allow within ourselves. It's more something we would turn on to, you know, the universal other or just people around us who we perhaps have negative associations with. And I think for me that the 1990s, even though I was I was relatively young when the album came out. Um, I was nine. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the 90s was overall a decade of like a, a sort of slow turn realisation that all is not so well with the American dream. So for, even from the 80s, there was a sense of like, well, the 90s has to be better. And it was a decade of relative prosperity and stability and so on. But that's not actually the case. And, and the 70s and the 80s hangover of kind of like slightly boom bust economics and recession had a real impact upon people's normal day-to-day lives, particularly things like employment and mental health and things like that. So the 90s, I think we look back at it with a lot of nostalgia, even now, there was a better, happier time. It wasn't necessarily all about prosperity and positivity. There were so many people who were left outside of that. And I think what bubbles up on the album for me is the overall kind of dissatisfaction and dissent, what became labelled Generation X which in its own way was kind of the counterculture of that decade. In the same way that you had um, the counterculture in the 1960s, that was basically questioning the status quo, or at least the overall impression that everyone was supposed to share and subscribe to, that things were okie-dokie and stable and steady, when in reality, for so many people, they weren't. It was so much about surface. I made a note because I thought you summed it up really well. And again, as somebody who was really coming at this through your book, Mm. I found it interesting and it was just very well stated. And you wrote, the record offered a voice of resistance to those with feelings being suppressed and made people feel less alone with their mental challenges. Yeah, yeah. So to the point we were talking about earlier, where it sells 5 million copies in the States alone, and, you know, you over there in the UK, and, you know, I'm not sure how huge they were internationally, but that's a lot of people Mm. with some suppressed feelings. Yeah, sure, sure. You don't want to say this one guy, like, managed to capture the zeitgeist and then package it and put it out there. But um, sometimes I think these things maybe have, without trying to be too esoteric, this is a kind of like a, a spiritual, psychological quake that comes through everything. And he was perhaps tapped into that because of the age he was. I think mm. at the time of the album, he was getting towards his late 20s. And so he was that a bit more mature and sort of maybe looking at things in the slightly bigger picture sense. Yeah, as I mentioned before, it was just a sense that things weren't okay with America, even though for lots of people... You know, it was still the land of sunshine and opportunity and possibility, which I know is like a a sort of horrible cliche. But, you know, for lots of people, that's kind of the point of America, the great democratic experiment that everyone has the right to pursue happiness and liberty and so on. Um, And freedom of expression, which this album, I think, kind of defines. It allows people to appreciate the expression of negativity and darkness. I think sometimes the consensus of music and the music industry is what sells and obviously happiness sells quite easily as opposed to sadness and the, that list of you know that really long list of negative things that we were talking about earlier 
who knows, given the conditions, it may uh, come back around and be a, have another run at popularity. Yeah, it remains relevant, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Extremely so. Well, let's talk about the record. Uh, you write that it works when listened to as a whole, with each song like a movement, revisiting and refocusing another aspect of the album. I think there's two ways to look at it. I think one thing, it, it kind of operates a bit like a classical suite in that sort of like the music revisits themes. There's a there's a downward spiral theme on the album. It's not that significant, but it's just these few notes, a sort of descending scale. And that actually crops up in, I think, three three different songs, but in little bits. So sometimes it's just like a, a coda to the main part of the song. But there's, there's those little touches, but then the songs revisit you know lots of different negative aspects across the record so they kind of all touch on one another and I think because it has a sort of vague narrative arc I don't want to try and enforce too much of a plot onto the record Mm. but because it has a kind of arc of like someone questioning everything and then pushing things in their life away and rejecting concepts and ideas that they gradually get whittled away down to a kind of nothing and then obviously at that point of nothing what what's left right there's a great Italian artist called Piranesi, and he's famous um, a bit like Escher for doing these really strange, complex etchings where there's a multitude of perspectives and walkways, um, often of like prisons or sort of institutional type environments that kind of crisscross all, all around one another. So whereas Escher is kind of linear, it shows you basically a neat loop. So the stairs go up and then they go down and they go around again. Piranesi is much crazier, for want of a better term. Hmm. So his is kind of like the architecture that reflects the internal struggle with selfhood that so many of us have. Who, what am I? You know, I'm a human being, but what does that mean? And what kind of person am I? And all those conflicting feelings and perspectives and contradictions that make up so much of how humanity operates, I think is present on the album. And so listening to it as a whole, you kind of go through that as dare I say a journey, but let's go with something a bit more uh, smart, like a progression. <laughs> and you can't help but be kind of like pulled into that undertow, that that sinking kind of gravity. One of the things uh, in your book that I liked most was you talked about the construction of the record and you just talked a little bit about it there. And it was largely driven by synthesizers like several other previous records and a lot of the albums of that time. But you write that it's less about synthesizers and sequencers and more about music production software that is still emerging. And ahead of the alternative curve, it sounded like the future and it still does today. Mm. That's serious praise there. (laughs) I think lots of people acknowledge a debt to Nine Inch Nails that's sometimes very stylistic and very aesthetic. So they don't necessarily sound like Nine Inch Nails. They got a lot from the album, whether it be mood and ambience and so on, or just literally weird things like the idea of combining really heavy guitar tones with sort of like almost like new wave synth pop kind of influences, which is where Trent Reznor was kind of coming from at the end of the 80s. So that's what I sort of think his first album from 89, Pretty Hate Machine, sort of represents. And he did a, um, a mini album slash EP, um, eight tracks, who knows, um, in 1992 called Broken. And that's like really heavy on the guitars. So I always kind of thought, well, it, to me, it was kind of obvious that the, the downward spiral was sort of the synthesis of those things. And so he was kind of like pushing both angles at once, which you wouldn't necessarily expect to work because it's almost like lightness and heaviness going together but obviously that's something the album achieves you know except for things like hip-hop a lot of the music especially you know the rock alternative music in the 90s was about guitars you know we think about a lot of it you know was kind of like 
drums, bass, guitar kind of groups. Reznor just didn't work like that anyway. You know, he was very much kind of an auteur, a bit like um, Bowie. Um, and he, you know, kind of had his musicians around him and like, give me this kind of beat, give me bass to this. Can you do it a bit more like this? Because he's got someone who's better on drums, better on bass than he is. And so he can sort of channel his wants and his concept into that person. And I'll be like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'll try and hit that kind of thing. Sounds like an art director. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think like a reasonably benevolent tyrant. And I think what he did really well, hip hop was making these great technological strides, a bit like you were talking about in the Roy Christopher episode of your podcast, where it was about like misusing technology and sometimes breaking things in order to get the right kind of sound. So Reznor had really silly things like um, he had this like guitar pedal and the batteries were running low and he's like, oh, I gave it a really great slurry, sludgy sound. Like it sounded shitty. But that's how he wanted it to sound. So he got like, in his mind, he got the best out of it that he could have, even though it wasn't working properly. And I think that's so cool and kind of brave because not everything was perfect and clean and neat edged. And yet the album's constructed quite meticulously. Like it, it still sounds really intense, really well produced, really modern. It doesn't sound flat or old or jaded or anything like that. All the levels are kind of like way up and you can pick out the individual sounds like the vinyl reissue. Uh, really good quality and you can just hear you know so much fidelity across the record of like little bits of synths and things so that's mm. something like people really enjoyed about the record you're like learning new things even though it's familiar to you which is um yeah it's, i guess it's kind of cute um it's not a major thing but it shows how much work went into like layering it up as opposed to getting some guys in the room and maybe just putting down you know four or eight tracks of guitar and drums and stuff and i think his his thing about misusing technology was kind of like deconstructing the idea of normal songwriting. You know, I sit there with my guitar and I trot something out start to finish. Here's the melody line. I put my vocals on it. Maybe I'll put some overdubs on it and maybe I won't. But it works perfectly as a plain acoustic thing. And because Reznor did classical piano, I think, in school, and then he did like computer science at college, um, those two things kind of clashed together to make this really weird mentality because he knew the standard rules of composition, um, very deft on the piano, which is, I think, the most musically versatile and technically ambitious instrument. Like, you can do so much more on a piano than you can with a guitar because right. you've got two hands doing two sets of things. He was able to kind of then break those rules because he could see the bigger picture. And then he does really weird stuff where, like, he's um, he'll play a guitar very slowly, purposely very slow. So let's say half speed of what you would normally do it and then he would just take it digitally and double the speed. So it goes normal, then beyond normal. <laughs> and so then it's twice, but it's already slow. So the tone is different. It's odd. It's altered, which is just not my area. Um, it's a really great example of him doing something really weird. And then other stuff he did, he might like play some guitar or some synth and then take a small snippet of it and make do something with it and make that sample into a loop. So Traditionally, sampling was like, um, obviously, very much from hip-hop background. Um, it was like, here's a rock track. I'll get a drum beat from that. Um, here's a little bit of guitar. Here's a little bit of synth. Here's a Kraftwerk riff on a keyboard. Um, and that will be, you know, the main hook for my song. And he's like making music and then chopping it up anyway. You know, it's cannibalistic, but it's just like so cool because he was kind of making it all from nothing really um, and obviously there are samples on the album but they tend to be a little bit more ambient vague 
bits of vocals and stuff like that. And I think what's really funny about the whole process is that he was using some of the earliest Macs uh, to record this stuff on <laughs> and, and, and adapt it. And that's just incredible because, you know, now Macs can kind of do anything. But back then, they were relatively new, relatively cutting edge, but really slow and really clunky. So it all took like ages to process. So you might do something and it was shit anyway. <laughs> then you, have to, you have to go back and start again. So it was still kind of, you know, quite manual, even though it was electronic. So it, it did take him a long time, over a year, to record the album. Mm. Probably the record company is very glad he built his own studio rather than using studio time. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's talk about where the album was recorded. I, I found this an incredible and perhaps telling piece of the story. Reznor originally wanted to record in New Orleans, but moved to Los Angeles, and he visited 15 houses in one day. He settles on 10050 Cielo Drive, a house with a very dark history to say the least. Indeed. So um, that, that particular house, um, it was an old movie star place, I think from maybe the 20s, 30s. Looked kind of like a, a giant cottage. <laughs> That's my sort of European impression of it, but just a big stretched out cottage thing with a lawn and up in the hills in, uh, I believe it's Benedict Canyon, it's called. Mm -hmm. um, so but literally looking straight down on L.A., essentially what happened was uh, it was bought by Roman Polanski and his then wife Sharon Tate members of the Charles Manson family, for want of a better phrase, a countercultural commune where Manson himself was the supposed leader, figurehead to a lot of very, compared to him, very young, impressionable people. And they were doing a lot of drugs, having a lot of free sex, which was kind of, it's sort of in the spirit of the times. But then he basically encouraged his followers and some would say on the legal terms induced them to go to the house at Cielo Drive and murder Sharon Tate who was pregnant at the time and um, I think about five other people so yeah it was a really a really dark horrific event and it's still I think like deep in the American psyche you know? definitely definitely and in the darkest pitch of gallows humor you're right he rechristened the house to a studio name which was Le Pig um, and this was basically from blood graffiti that was written on the front door of the house, just the word pig, uh, in what I believe was Sharon Tate's blood. Yeah, that's that's pretty dark. He saw the house as, quote, a blank canvas. It was gated in, the windows were blacked out, Reznor wouldn't leave for weeks. Mm. And he acknowledged that it, that might have had an effect on the vibe of the record. I, I would argue, how could it not? Yeah, sure, sure. And I think in some ways that over the decades, he seems to have had a really strong, intense work ethic, which I think is kind of what makes him a really good artist, as opposed to just someone who knocks out albums to generate cash. He takes it like seriously. And there was almost to me kind of like a, a method acting type approach, you know, I'm going to hunker down in this house. And it's it's really weird, because he saw all those houses and he kind of it seems, I think, perhaps a bit disingenuously said, oh, I never realised it was this house. I'm sure the estate agent wouldn't say that. But, um, you know, being the kind of guy he was, I, I was surprised that he didn't know. And, you know, he talked about like um, ghostly vibes in the house and stuff. Um, but he was also, I think, aware of the sensitivities towards Sharon Tate's sister and other people who'd been affected by the murders. And he made a statement of the, the kind of like, you know, I don't, condone murder and things like that and i think manson was a fuckhead and things like this but yeah he still kind of made that like slight performance out of the creation of the record and the Le pig comment as well you know these are all kind of things that show he was i think slightly willing to be immersed 
and that kind of mentality. And it's a weird thing because, you know, the 60s it, and even the 90s, actually, I think compared to now, it was a more basic time. The internet was in its infancy in 93, 94. And we weren't like so keen to obscure or alter history. Take that as you like. Mm. But what I mean is that back then they didn't have access to so much information. And the fact that there was pigs or I think piggies um, written in blood, the Manson family members sort of envisioned this, I think, in their own heads as um, a protest against um, the war in Vietnam, which they saw as sort of universal slaughter. Yeah, I think some of that definitely bled into um, the creation of the album. Sorry, um, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. But um, yeah, I think I think it was a, you know, an undercurrent once again to being in that sort of environment. Let's talk about some of the music. I mean, sure. what do you make of the fact that two of the songs have the word piggy in the title? I mean, you know, that can't be a coincidence, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, a part of that, the, the, the pigs itself is a really weird thing, um, just because, like, there's a weird connection back to the, the house um, and the Beatles and the White Album, particularly tracks like Piggies and um, Helter Skelter, both of which inspired Manson. Um, but the pigs themselves, that's it's a, for me, it's a really interesting concept. So there's uh, there's the two tracks, there's Piggy and March of the Pigs. And I think like off the cuff, they sound like derogatory terms. But I think um, there's a weird crossover at that point. So in um, Piggy, the earlier track, we're perhaps seeing like the breakdown of a relationship. It's believed to be thought of one of Reznor's then bandmates, Richard Patrick, who basically split the band around the time of the downward spiral. That relationship kind of broke down. But it's weird to me because I sort of see the way Reznor uses it, particularly in that song, but also in a sense in March of the Pigs as a vaguely affectionate term. So as much as the person might be a victim within that relationship, they sort of remain beloved in some way. There's perhaps a sense of shared abuse. I think March of the Pigs looks more like the fans. Um, the fans basically brought into this one mass audience to the point at which the individuals become kind of indistinguishable. So you're doing a, a long tour and a series of shows and you're perhaps playing more or less the same set list. So each night's kind of the same but different. And as great as the feedback from the audience, you get a sense through Reznor's mental state and the things he talks about at that time of how that can really grind you down and you know, become a, like a mass exposure to an overall kind of sameness. There's a, there's a weird back and forth between the artist and the audience and there's expectations upon the audience to enjoy the show. The audience also kind of want to see the artist like wreck themselves in the process of delivering you know, the best show ever and the best music ever, almost at like personal cost to them as much as they love and care about them. So there's almost like the encouragement to sort of self-destruction, I think, sometimes. Mm. And I think like Reznor kind of grew to sometimes resent his audience and especially the the increasingly like industrial mill of um, the music industry. Well, Closer was the album single, and that's easily the most melodic and mainstream. In fact, you call it the Nine Inch Nails equivalent of Gary Newman's Cars, which is funny. <laughs> but of course, you know, for a single, Trent had to drop the F-bomb into the chorus, which would certainly disrupt the airplay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the, the hit that never was. Now, it's so ubiquitous, it's so well known, it kind of actually serves to define the band and perhaps even define that early mid-90s era of Reznor's music. But at the time, I think it was, yeah, it was hard for them to actually get radio play for it. And I believe there's a couple of versions. 
in one version i think they say something instead of fuck in another one it's just edited out so it's like a gap mm. you know it's it's like present by its absence it's really strange but it's such a catchy hook laden song it's actually really danceable and really groovy and obviously quite dark but also like darkly sexual so it's it's really amazing that it never kind of broke through in that way it's it's a really conflicting strange song well, you could say that about most of the songs on the album, at least from my perspective. And and I did, mm. again, coming into it new and with your book as a guide. And, you know, Hurt, which closes the album, starts out as, as a quiet little ditty at first. And, and then it ends in this, you know, industrial cacophony. And, you know, Johnny Cash would famously and surprisingly cover that song. That almost didn't come about, though, right? Yeah, it's it's a really strange story. Um, I mean, I think in some ways it's unsurprising, isn't it, that someone like Johnny Cash, especially in his later years, would really touch something that is so abrasive and angry and full of cussing for an artist that, you know, is so disassociated from what he was doing, even by like musical style, but also just by years, like from Johnny Cash's generation when he was born and when he started out all the way through to you know, Reznor in the early 90s. And then when Cash did the song, which I think was 2003 or something weird like that. Um, so a long time after. And it's weird because it kind of became the hit that sort of helped establish Nine Inch Nails in the popular consciousness. But it also obviously hurt the band in some ways. People were like, oh, Nine Inch Nails did a cover of that Johnny Cash song. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that would really sting, right? Yeah. Um, and I think what happened was basically that Cash as a sort of reformed preacher man was nudged and advised and encouraged by Rick Rubin producing those final records to look again at the lyrics. And Cash saw himself in those own struggles with addiction, self-destruction at large. And so those two weird worlds sort of collide. But Cash's, you know, Cash's cover is so strong, right? And I think he called it one of the best songs about addiction, mm. something to that end. And Trent, on the other hand, said that hearing it was like someone kissing your girlfriend, which is such yeah. a funny quote. And uh, yeah. do you know what his reaction was to Cash's version? I think in time he, he came to appreciate it, not necessarily because it boosted on its nails, but more because I think it helped him appreciate himself as, a, as an actual songwriter, which is ironic given what I was talking about before, because obviously what Cash's version does is largely stripped down but it shows how the basic chord structure and the melody and obviously the sentiment return to self-loathing and self-hatred but weirdly coming around toward possibility of self-forgiveness is actually brought through on this really strong um, little bit of music which is powerful but simple so I actually kind of made me think of something like the Beatles you know a really strong slightly odd chord structure but in its own way, it's catchy, it's melodic, and it actually carries meaning. I think I get the impression that Reznor, you know, came to reassess the song for himself and could see that he actually did something really great, even though it's such a negative, challenging song. And like you say, that that kind of like crash at the end, which, you know, the first time you hear the album is crazy because it kind of blows out your speakers, right. you know, was just a reminder of like destroying sentiment in uh, the, the video for Cash's version, I know Reznor had one that was kind of controversial too, but the, the one for Johnny Cash's version really expresses what I think he saw in that song. It's, you know, bare roots, you know, and him very elderly at that time. And, you know, it shows the, the Cash Museum, which was recovering from a flood, just trashed. And it's just a very yeah. interesting perspective to those lyrics, especially. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, like you say, the, the museum, you know, without like pushing it too far, the museum kind of sits a bit like a metaphor for Cash because he's in those sort of final years and everything, everything about it kind of seems bittersweet. So there's a vague sense of triumph to it. And I thought what was nice about it, Cash saw perhaps a more positive, encouraging sentiment in the song, dark as it is, that, you know, you can have a reckoning with your past or negative experiences in your life. But in doing so, you know, you've at least encouraged yourself to reflect and then and, and face up to your own fears, demons, whatever you want to call it. And I think in some ways that's kind of like, you know, as noble an ending as um, pretty much anyone can hope for, right? Definitely. Definitely. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Adam Steiner. He's the author of a new book called Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails and the Creation of the Downward Spiral. There's a lot of other influential art forms that kind of inform the project. And as a music-based art director, I was really thrilled to read about the album cover design and, and Russell Mills mm -hmm. and his work. Uh, and it seems that, you know, the, the combination of texture and mood is so perfectly suited to this record. And that's his special area. It's really impressive, isn't it? It's like... um. I wasn't really that aware of Mills myself, so I tried to do a bit of digging. And he's done, you know, he's done lots of different um, record work. A weird thing he did back in the day was one of Brian Eno's early albums with the pianist Harold Budd. It's called love The those. Pearl. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I love him too. And, and that's from like 1984 or something. So he was obviously involved in music at large, but, you know, I'm sure he had not much idea who Nine Inch Nails was at that time yeah it's it's a really great piece of artwork and I couldn't actually get a hold of Mills myself but he talks with such depth and passion and I think flair um about the like the ideas and resources that inspired him to do this relatively singular relatively straightforward piece of work and what I really like about that is you get a real sense of the the empathy um that lies behind a sort of relatively sterile image and what I think it enabled the downward spiral to do is like move beyond once again, like the confines of just being another album, because it's perhaps like Nine Inch Nails most cohesive statement as a complete work of art. 
the artwork and the music Bresner's um, autobiography at that time all those weird you know the house <laughs> the yeah. studio all that weird combination of things came together at once and I think that's really rare and, and kind of precious in in music let alone you know the art world there's also allusions to an incredibly disturbing short film by Throbbing Gristle member Peter Sleazy Christofferson called Broken. Mm. I had to look it up on YouTube and it didn't take long to turn it off. But it's, yeah, a, it's crazy. A, it's a kidnapping, yeah. torture, snuff film that you write makes the audience a voyeur as much as a victim, which sounds a lot like what Reznor was going for on the downward spiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think one way, <laughs> I think one way to look at the album, as you say, is it's kind of like a car crash of a mental breakdown. And Reznor uses that phrase at one point about, you know, looking back, like he's a normal person. You sometimes you can't help but look at a disaster, mm -hmm. even though it's horrifying. There's something in the you that longs to see it and long to have some acknowledgement or some engagement with those kind of horrors in the world. And obviously it. That attitude kind of represents the attitude of the album overall, that when you kind of like, you know, take apart and destroy everything around you, as nihilistic and as angry as you are, it kind of has a bottom. You can only go so far. Um, and then once you're there, where, where do you go from there, you know? Mm. Well, hopefully up, but... Um, <laughs> maybe. <you> know, <laughs> maybe. Uh, Reznor also drops a couple of interesting influences on the album that you recount in your book. And the first is Pink Floyd's The Wall, in part yeah. for the narrative structure, but I think more importantly, the alienation and uh, that factor. Yeah, sure. Um, it's For me, it's kind of like the fear and self-loathing. The, the artist Pink um, has across that album for his his audience let alone other human beings that general misanthropy is actually kind of borne out by roger waters own kind of neuroses there's a crazy quote from the producer bob ezrin it's something like it's a gestalt opera you know for all of waters in the most fears and pains which he kind of repeated across several albums anyway so it became less about pink floyd yeah. and more about roger waters and then i think again there's, there's an extension there with like david bowie uh, the other key influence and him sort of trying to recover from his cocaine snowstorm hmm. in LA, the most hated piss pot in the world or something he called it, uh, when he was in Berlin and just struggling to kind of put his life back together again. And in their own way, both his artists, they kind of like share, you know, the harpies of their neuroses, just like haunting them, always with the furies. And from a production standpoint, musically, you know, that Berlin trilogy was a lot mm. of the same. And you mentioned, you know, who produced those records and, you know, that same kind of layering technique that Reznor practiced on Downward Spiral. So that, I thought that was sonically a very interesting influence. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? It's interesting. You've kind of got like, um, it's a really good point. You've got the two aspects of um, Reznor's mind. You've got Brian Eno, the, the crazy experimental sort of anti-technical guy who's actually quite, I think, quite like a deft instrumentalist. He's very intuitive, but he's not really, he never really takes it quite that seriously. You know, he's not so tech-minded. He's more just like, let's try this. Oh, fuck it, let's try this. And then you have Tony Visconti, let's say the actual captain at the helm, steering the ship and making sure an album of some kind gets made and is reasonably well-produced, doing really cool techie stuff. So a great thing on the the low album that you hear all across it is that he put uh, a gate on the drums basically it just means that um, it only captured a certain section of the snare drum sound 
So it's like the highermost portion, but at its most percussive and kind of cuts mm. out the rest of it. So you just get really like crazy blasts of snare drum, like, and then it's gone again. And that's a really, I think, like techy kind of thing to do back in the mid 70s. And that's the kind of things like, you know, Resonant was doing in terms of like making instruments sound unlike themselves. So the guitars don't always sound like guitars or the drums sound weird. You know, he, he makes like the real performances seem synthesized and he tries to make like the synthesized performances sound more organic and a, a bit more human. And overall, I think that makes the album sound really alive, even though the listening experience can sometimes seem like a bit of like a, a deadening, you know, a petrification um, as it all goes on. I was really surprised to learn that uh, Bowie and Nine Inch Nails went out on tour together, 95, 96, for Bowie's Outside record. And, you know, Bowie famously said that he personally liked the combination, but my fans didn't. <laughs> and I, I can understand that from a perspective of generational, probably, yeah. first and foremost, but also, you know, they did a mini set together playing Hurt and Scary Monsters amongst a couple of other songs. Um, that, that kind of attitude is like, what makes Bowie's music still matter? To lots of people it's still like reasonably fresh and and relevant to listeners as opposed to people who plowed the same furrow for decades and and never sought to change or challenge themselves which is something that i think you know resna took on board and you know there's this really interesting thing about those shows where bowie played a few hits but he mostly played his new one outside record which uh, it came out in 95 but i think for the first few shows it wasn't out and then in 96, it, you know, it had been out for a, a couple of months. So the people at those first shows were like, what the fuck is this craziness? It's like, <laughs> you know, where's the David Bowie songs? And they got, they got a few hits in there, but most of it was from that record and things with, you know, Trent Reznor, where they segued between the two sets. And famously, a load of people left for the Bowie sets. <laughs> not surprised. You know, the, the great thing about it is like Bowie's presence and his, his attitude really inspired Reznor. And there's that great quote from Bowie about going out into the water where your feet aren't quite touching the bottom. You're a little bit uncertain if this is okay. But he says, then you're about to do something really interesting. And, you know, I just think that's really inspiring. Yeah, and, that's... yeah and, and, and by that time, you know, Bowie had like loads of laurels to his name, but like no real fucks to give. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> he could be like more of a pure artist and not worry so much about sales, you know. You mentioned several times in your book uh, where you compared Trent with Kurt Cobain. Mm. Musically, psychically, what, what was the combination? I, I think it's a slightly cheeky comparison. I think musically, they're obviously really different in terms of tech and um, techniques. But I think overall, they shared a kind of like acerbic view. And they weren't afraid to express their own flaws and their own doubts and their own fears, which you didn't really get in music for a long time, especially with like the rock and roll machismo, the, the front man, especially, you know, was always meant to be desirable and to be in some kind of image of perfection and highly sexualized and all these things. And, you know, those guys weren't necessarily pursuing that. They didn't necessarily want to be adored. They were more in it for the music which is how Nirvana was able to help kill off like hair metal where the music kind of like got displaced by um, like shallow appearances and just spectacle over anything else. So what they really shared was a strong sense of self-awareness 
and the willingness to like express that and though it might be cathartic it could also be a slightly painful experience so in that sort of sense i think they were both kind of pioneers of like a new sincerity in music well you know Reznor refers to himself in high school as someone who fell through the cracks largely unnoticed so yeah you know the same thing i think with cobain it's no wonder that these huge crowds and constant attention would have these effects on them yeah, yeah. And that's the thing we're sort of realizing now, you know, so much in um, 2020, you know, even in the last decade, like fame and attention, having a, a certain kind of presence, especially through things like social media, it's made people exposed in a way that is perhaps unnecessary. Because, you know, the main thing you'd think for these artists is to get their record out there, not themselves. People might see you as having a persona, and that's fine. But Ultimately, you're a human being who's making music. So ideally, you'd think that the music comes first. And I think for a large chunk of contemporary artists, that's not really the issue or the priority. I think probably money and then eventually sort of the sense of being adored and then self-adoration follows from that. Um, whereas for these guys who were already kind of pissed off and angry and depressed and, you know, rejected like the, the sentiment of falling through the cracks. I think that's familiar for lots of people. You weren't necessarily remarkable. You weren't necessarily unremarkable. You were just kind of normal. They at least had the, the openness and the integrity to sort of say that not everything is positive all the time. And, you know, I think what's inspirational from it, whether you're stuck in your bedroom or hanging around the wrong group of friends or you feel trapped in a small town and you always want to go off to New York or London or Boston or Chicago, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and just go to the, you know, the big lights. Um, you can see that these things are possible and that you might have something else to offer, which your environment isn't necessarily feeding or um, open to. And yeah, that's where like, even though they had relatively straightened early lives, um, Cobain especially had quite a you know, damaged childhood, really, that there's always new possibilities out there, particularly through you know, deliverance by um, being creative, by trying to be an artist. There's some great writing towards the end of your book where you call the downward spiral, quote, a look into the abyss, and it was alienated and angry. And you also remark that it's part of a larger resistance to the anemic consensus of pop. So, you know, one personal and one kind of to the, the art that kind of informs you. Can you just explain what you mean by those things? Yeah, sure. I just think that alongside, you know, bands like Nirvana, um, and Reznor sort of like drew a line in the sand and showed that things like alienation and angst can really sell. Uh, and, and the reason for that, you know, putting aside the commercial bullshit is um, that they, they resonated, those, those sentiments resonate with lots of people. The music industry heads never necessarily banked on that. They might have had people like um, Kiss and to a more positive extent, you know, um, Black Sabbath and so on, who, you know, um, were a bit dark and gloomy and had the sort of gothy aesthetic, but were actually relatively normal kind of guys, <laughs> even though their music was, you know, quite hardcore at times. But these guys were perhaps sort of like exposing themselves and putting their hearts on the line. You know, it wasn't just a teenage experience. You know, I don't think that's five million over time. I think that's five million records worth of um, appreciation and empathy. You know, it's like the confused and challenging times. Lots of people will face at different times in their lives, particularly when people are teenagers, but like, you know, through lots of different issues throughout adult life. And I think like the empathetic expression of artists like Nirvana and NH Nails um, and people like Marilyn Manson actually said that like music helps you feel less alone. 
And I think that's a really common feeling for lots of people. Music that's not necessarily happy and boppy, it might be really dark, but because of that connectivity, you kind of feel like a hand reaching out from the darkness. And that, that gives you something more than the common everyday music does, which just sort of glosses over real feelings, I think. That's funny. Uh, one of the funniest lines, and there's not many in your book, but there's a really <laughs> fun, funny a lot, and at least for me, because I think it's something everybody feels and can point towards. But with that combination of Cobain and Nirvana and, and Reznor, yeah. he was talking about, I was like teen spirit, Trent Reznor was, and he said, I fucking love that song, but I never want to hear it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's sort of the curse of the hit, isn't it? I mean, I think um, in some ways, Nine Inch Nails and the Downward Spiral kind of suffer from that because it's sort of the, the millstone milestone I mean, now you want to look at it um that kind of hangs around reza's neck because everything sort of got compared to it or it was like record label great work are you going to do another one is like oh, fuck i can't do that again you know it's almost <laughs> impossible to replicate and i think probably you wouldn't want to go back there and you know the fact that he then spent five years fair enough a lot of time touring and so on and he had a lot of like um personal issues um but in you know, five years for the fragile to be released um the double album in 99 and the fact that it was a double album, I think, is kind of interesting because it, to me, generally sort of portrays a slight lack of direction and, should we say, editing. I think, um, you know, that overbearing legacy of the downward spiral, you know, haunts Reznor sometimes, even though I think his music is still really good. It's something that he can't really escape from. And you can't, you know, you can't do it again. You can't go back there. It's it's something so unique and distinctive. That, that was my last question for you, was the legacy, both culturally and in the canon. I think you answered it perfectly, especially when you use the millstone and milestone <laughs> uh, phrase. I think yeah. it captures it perfectly because it's it's probably equal parts of each of those things. One, one more thing I should mention about that, actually, is um, if that's okay. Sure. You know, in recent times, he's more well-known as the Oscar-winning soundtrack artist, along with his collaborator, Atticus Ross, who's also now part of Nine Inch Nails, um, for the Social Network film, you know, making the soundtrack for that, which is a great, it's a great soundtrack. And it delivers, like, in so many interesting ways. And it's not like a normal soundtrack that you've always heard before, which is always, um, it always seems to be two guys who do all the, <laughs> the soundtracks for Hollywood movies, and it's always loads of strings. And Reznor, you know, still really experimental artist. His soundtracks, like, are evocative and atmospheric, and he always chooses really interesting projects, like the um, Ken Burns 10-part documentary about Vietnam. I think it's just called Vietnam. But that's a fantastic, like, piece of documentary filmmaking. And obviously that's 10, maybe more hours of music, at least 10 hours of music <laughs> that he put yeah. together. And I think like the blueprint for that, you know, creative boldness um, was actually established with the downward spiral, you know? Yeah. And it seems to be his niche now, you know, I was surprised to see how many of the films and starting with the social network and, and a lot of other really, really big films that yeah, he yeah. was involved with. So. You know, maybe he's found his peace after the downward spiral and it's all upwards from here. But, <laughs> he, he has great um, taste, I think, for a project. It's really interesting. He, he knows there's out quite cool stuff. You know, the, the strategy and the, the how he made this record, a, a la Bowie in the Berlin period, mm. lends itself really well to kind of soundtracks, you know, because these certain layers and you can move yeah. the pieces around and, and repeat themes. And it seems to be a good place for him. Yeah, and, and to not be afraid to be instrumental. And have you know quiet periods without lyrics and so on 
ambient periods as well. Well, quiet and ambient is the opposite of this record. <laughs> and this record is yeah. uh, Downward Spiral. And we've been speaking with Adam Steiner, who wrote a book called Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails and the Creation of the Downward Spiral. Again, I didn't know a ton about this, and, and some of the music isn't right up my alley, but mm. I found your book fascinating. I mean, it, it is really well done and if you're a fan there's so much detail in here and and stories as well as you know i can tell you know the musical side you may be a musician and you know can talk about that and then there's you know the other pieces you know what's going through his mind and all this stuff and mm. it's a, it's a really 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 good exploration you know of a pretty formidable album so thanks for talking with us adam yeah thank you and thank you for your questions really interesting if you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an All Music Books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.